Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. Glad to have you back for episode two of our festive food theme. Last week we explored ancient Greece, primarily in the classical period. We found that sacrifices, festivals, weddings, and funerals all had food present. At the same time, it helped show the kind of things we're looking for in the festive food theme, including when a special event with food isn't exactly festive. So now we turn our attention to a much more recent society. Today, we're looking at the Ottoman Empire. I believe I mentioned coffee at the end of last week's episode. In truth, it's not going to be the focus of today, but the Ottomans did enjoy their coffee, and their coffee houses became a big deal. By the late 1800s, Istanbul alone had well over 2,000. They served to provide all sorts of activities, social, political, and entertainment. Not a festive food point, but an interesting one that relates to a type of food. And remember, this was before electric coffee makers. All that coffee was ground up and diluted in water by hand. Royal coffee makers even held elaborate ceremonies with 40 assistants to serve the sultans properly. Imagine that when you go to get your morning coffee. Now that we've talked about the coffee, let's talk about that festive food. The first event I want to talk about is the religious Eid al-Adha. In terms of significance, it was, and still is, one of the most important holidays in Islam. Translated, it means Feast of the Sacrifice. The significance is tied to Ibrahim, known as Abraham among Jewish and Christian religions. Though his name and a few other things differ, he is significant in all three. In Islam, Ibrahim is seen as a prophet and messenger of God, Allah in Islam. It is believed God commanded him in a dream to sacrifice his son. This was the result of a vow Ibrahim made years earlier. He vowed that if he had a son, he would be willing to sacrifice him for God. The dream was a reminder of this vow and a call for Ibrahim to carry it out. In his unwavering devotion to God, Ibrahim agreed to carry out the sacrifice. Seeing his devotion to his will, God intervened before Ibrahim could carry out the sacrifice. Ibrahim's preparation and intent to carry out the sacrifice was considered enough for it to be accepted. Ibrahim was then sent what is referred to as a great sacrifice, which is said to have been a ram or a lamb. This animal was then sacrificed instead of Ibrahim's son. Ibrahim and his family took the animal and cooked some parts of it. However, they didn't keep it all for themselves. They also gave some parts to the poor. This act directly ties into the Eid al-Adha festival and the food we're going to see there. During the days of the empire, the sultan met with high officials on the day before the festival, called the Day of Arafah. The throne of the sultan was carried through the Gate of Felicity to the Ars Odasi, which is where meetings with high officials took place. These places were both located at the sultan's palace. He would choose the mosque for the Eid prayers, usually either the Hagia Sophia or the Blue Mosque. 
The next morning he would first perform the morning prayer at the Chamber of Holy Relics. Then he would ride a fancy horse to the chosen mosque for the Eid prayer. The horse's harness was decorated with gold, pearls, and jewels to create a vision of unparalleled glory. After the prayer, the celebrations began in the Gate of Felicity. Now we reach the sacrifice. For this festival, a sheep was used. It was given special preparations leading up to the sacrifice. Specially dressed officials were tasked with these preparations, feeding it, and carrying it to the sultan where it was then sacrificed. In keeping with the reason for this festival, that being Ibrahim's actions, at least two-thirds of the sacrificed animal, or possibly animals, were given to the needy and the schools. They were not the only ones to receive something special on this day. Military officers and civil servants both received a salary bonus. More relevant to our theme, soldiers were given various food items. These included sugar, lamb, balaclava, and halva, which is a dense, sweet, gelatinous confection. I've had some that my Ottoman Empire professor brought in on the last day of classes, and it was pretty good. Even the prisoners were included, receiving halva in their cells. Those who had served two-thirds of their sentence were even pardoned on the day of the festival. So here again we find that sacrifice is a part of the festive food theme, though in a different form and with a different preferred animal. And rather than being distributed among all present, it is notably given to the needy and to the schools. As for the relation to God, it is said that only the devotion of those participating will reach him, not any physical part of the sacrifice. The meat and blood remain with the people. And this is still celebrated today. Men, women, and children all dress in their finest clothes for the Eid prayer. Those who can afford it sacrifice their own animals. Which animal depends on the region. So, based on where you are, it might be the previously mentioned ram or sheep. Or it could be a cow, a goat, or even a camel. Whatever is sacrificed, the meat is divided into three parts. One for family, one for friends, and the last for the needy. And to satisfy the large number of people involved, it isn't just one animal sacrificed. From what I've found, the number can total in the millions. That's a lot of animals, and you may hear animal sacrifice being performed in modern times and feel uneasy. Plenty of people do. Just remember that, along with the religious aspect, this is a sacrifice which creates a special meal. And that, along with the other foods, brings Eid al-Adha into our festive food theme. In the Ottoman Empire, and into modern times as well. Next, we're going to talk about another of the most important holidays in Islam, and the one that I would venture to guess is the most widely known. Ramadan, the ninth month of the Islamic calendar. Muslims fast during this month to commemorate the revelation of the Quran by the angel Gabriel to the prophet Muhammad. Like Eid al-Adha, Ramadan was celebrated in the Ottoman Empire and continues to be celebrated today. So we'll explore it in the same way, by first looking at the Ottoman traditions and then looking at what traditions take place today. Parts of Ramadan could be challenging to those living in the Ottoman Empire. During the month, people would fast during the day, not just for a few hours, but from sunrise until sunset. When you think of how difficult it can be just to fast for a few hours, you can imagine the level of dedication this took. 
And not only were they dedicated, but they were enthusiastic about this act of devotion. They didn't approach it thinking about how they weren't going to be able to eat all day. They approached it as part of their religion, and they were happy to be a part of it, no matter how difficult it might have been. So we know they didn't eat during the day, and you may be wondering how this fits festive food. It's the breaking of this daily fast that we're looking for. Obviously, they had to eat sometime. This time was welcomed with some ceremony. The Ottoman Empire's version of this was influenced by their use of gunpowder, something not everyone had access to. At sunset, a round of cannon fire would sound to signal to the faithful in the empire that it was time to break the fast. As you'd expect, the form this meal took differed based on the wealth of those participating. For the wealthy, they would have an appetizer, something small like dates and water which were in keeping with the traditions and practices of the Prophet Muhammad. The less wealthy likely skipped the appetizers and went straight to the meal. Now, the reason for this isn't what you probably think, at least not entirely. True, the cost of the appetizers was a factor. So was the fact that they weren't really necessary to carry out the traditional breaking of the fast. There was another factor involved, and it's one that is very commonly found when making distinctions of wealth. Those with less wealth were more likely to have worked hard labor during the day and have to work hard labor the next day. Think of the difference between working a desk job in an air-conditioned building versus working construction in the hot sun. Both will be hungry after not eating all day, but the latter much more so. It was similar for the Ottomans, and so the less wealthy would go straight to the main meal to satisfy their increased hunger. In any case, these meals were often eaten as families and as communities. It was another time when people came together over food even if they didn't remain so during the rest of the night. The meals eaten during this time were based more on personal preferences than a specific tradition like we saw in Eid al-Adha. It was more about the tradition of breaking the fast together than what specifically was eaten. Historical documents have mentioned things like fish, soup, cheese, pastries, and some others. Whatever they ate, the way this meal was consumed varied along the lines of wealth, too. The wealthy were more likely to eat the meal at once and engage in various activities during the night, such as saying nightly prayers at a mosque or being entertained in their homes. They might also go out to those coffee houses I mentioned earlier. For the poor, a more measured approach was taken. They might still go to the mosques for nightly prayers, but they wouldn't like to participate in the other entertaining activities. Their focus was on making the best of the nighttime hours. They had to work the next day, after all. So the priorities would be to get as much rest as possible while eating at regular intervals throughout the night. Cannon fire signaled a pre-dawn meal, the last chance to eat before the fast began again. Ideally for the poor who had to work, they would have spaced out meals during the night so this meal wasn't the only food meant to sustain them through the day. That isn't to say there wasn't some generosity on behalf of the sultan and high-ranking officials with regards to the less wealthy. From what I've found, they did conduct animal sacrifices to once again distribute meat to the poor. Not only that, they would also open the doors to their own houses as a sign of hospitality and generosity. That's really quite interesting, if you ask me. It isn't something leaders often do, but for Ramadan, these leaders did. 
As you can see, this nightly breaking of the fast was something like a festivity itself. Now that we've seen the Ottoman Empire's traditions, let's look again at the modern observance. First thing to mention is that Ramadan is not on the same days every year. Because the Islamic calendar follows the moon, the beginning and ending of Ramadan are both determined by a moon sighting committee in Saudi Arabia. They look for the new crescent moon, which occurs one day, approximately, after the new moon and is difficult to see even with a clear sky. Additionally, it is only visible for around 20 minutes, so this committee has to be vigilant. Estimates can be made on what day this will occur based on the lunar cycles, and calculations can be used in the event of clouds blocking the sky. Still, it is preferred that the crescent be visually observed in order to determine the start date. Once the month has begun, Muslim actions are to be carried out both intentionally and selflessly, with the aim being to grow spiritually and develop stronger relationships with Allah. As with Ottomans, they fast during the month, though this apparently didn't apply to food alone. It seems sexual intercourse is also something done only in the nighttime hours. Honestly, I have no idea if the Ottomans participated in that type of fasting as well. Not all are required to fast. Those who are ill, elderly, pregnant, menstruating, or traveling are all allowed to miss days of fasting. In other words, people who could be compromised or harmed in some way. Any days where fasting was missed can actually be made up throughout the year, something again that I didn't find referenced in the Ottoman Empire. When it comes to breaking the fast, we have specifics for the modern observance. I think I forgot to mention that the two meals for breaking fast have their own names. The nighttime fast breaking is called iftar. Today, it takes place once the sunset prayer Maghreb has been completed. Typically, this happens around 7.30. The pre-dawn breakfast is called suhor and usually takes place around 4 a.m., which is before the first prayer of the day, called Fajr. Since the Ottomans followed the same calendar, we can be fairly sure they followed the same times as well. As for the food eaten today, the same staples are involved. Dates and a glass of water, just as Prophet Muhammad broke his fast with. These are found at both meals, and the dates are a good staple to have during this month of fasting. They are rich in nutrients, easily digested, and also provide sugar. For a body that has just gone through a long day of fasting and preparing for another day of fasting, they are good food to eat. Following this appetizer, a main meal is served during iftar. The dates and water traditionally take place among families, while the main meal is often a community event. From what I understand, it's very common to find a buffet-style meal in a social gathering. Even grand banquets have emerged, serving hundreds or even thousands all in one location. A much bigger gathering than we'd find in the Ottoman Empire. Nevertheless, the idea is the same. Community gathering each night to break the fast. So that's a brief overview of Ramadan. From the Ottoman Empire to now, it's mostly remained the same. Most important to us, the presence of food has also remained the same. While we're here, let's talk about one more very important holiday that's directly connected. Eid al-Fitr, the breaking of the fast. Unlike the nightly iftar, Eid al-Fitr is the final breaking of the fast at the end of Ramadan. 
It is a holiday unto itself and the day to mark the end of Ramadan. That connection also means the day on which Eid al-Fitr occurs is determined by the sighting of the new moon, just as Ramadan is determined by the crescent moon. Now, not only was it expected that people would stop fasting on this day, but it was and is forbidden to fast. For those who had fasting days to make up, this couldn't be one of those days. The food eaten on this day varied based on personal preferences and location, but was always sweet. The dates, which have been present throughout Ramadan, are also present here, though in this case they appear to have been cooked as part of an actual dish rather than eaten on their own with water. Families didn't remain in their homes with this meal. They would also go out to visit their friends and family, bringing more food with them. They would visit and eat just as they had each night during Ramadan. But it seems it wasn't something they did by gathering in one place, but rather by visiting each other throughout the day and sharing the food they brought as well as the food that their loved ones had cooked. In terms of religious significance, this day is right up there with Eid al-Adha. It also originated with the Prophet Muhammad. After he migrated from Mecca, he arrived in Medina where two days were being celebrated. According to his companion, Anas, the Prophet Muhammad spoke that the Almighty had set two days for festivity instead of those which these people were celebrating when he arrived. These were Eid al-Adha and Eid al-Fitr. You can see how these two days are of great importance and were established as a pair. Keep in mind that while I've been speaking in the past tense, many of these traditions are still part of Eid al-Fitr today. In truth, I could have just focused on the modern festivals, but I wanted to bring that bit of history and let you see how it carries forward to today, in addition to the connections we'll make in a few weeks. Oh, and one last note. I found in my research that in modern-day Turkey, there is a tradition where young children go door-to-door to, door to wish everyone Happy Bayram, and in return, they are given various sweets, including traditional baklava and Turkish delight. Here I had intended to go into the other parts of Ottoman life, including funerals and weddings, but I'd rather not have any more delays getting this episode posted for you. So I hope you can forgive me for cutting this one a bit short. Next week, we'll be taking a look at Africa. You'll have to tune in to see when and where. Until then, take care.